all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. It's fascinating because, you know, in my lifetime, you know, I've heard, oh, it's like a minor, nothing disease, you know, it's not, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you go back and if you actually look, look for it, it's there. People have been coping with it for, I think, thousands of years. And there's like thousands of years of uh, knowledge and treatment. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 170 with our Lime historian, Dr. Mary M. Dryman. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. And in this episode, you will learn about the ancestor of Borrelia that was preserved in amber, how Neanderthal DNA might affect modern human immune systems, and why medieval European noblemen might have had more exposure to Lyme disease than their peasant counterparts. Thanks, Aurora. Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners from Thessaloniki, Greece, to Pretoria, South Africa, and from Zurich, Switzerland, to Toronto, Canada. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd like to welcome all you new ninjas out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And if you like what we're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, this week's top 10 Lime Ninja cities are... Starting at number 10 is Northmead, Australia. Number 9, New Lenox, Illinois. Number 8, Portland, Oregon. Number 7, Tacoma, Washington. Number 6, Bellevue, Washington. Number 5, Stamford, Connecticut. Number 4, Oak Brook, Illinois. Number 3, New York, New York. Bringing it back in. Number 2, Seattle, Washington. And number 1 this week is Olive Branch, Mississippi. All right, Aurora. Tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Dr. M.M. M. Dryman. Dr. 
M. M. Dryman is a historian and writer who lives on the coast of Maine. With an extensive background as a museum educator and curator, she has interests in landscape change, the history of witches, Scotch-Irish culture, historic foodways, and a Lyme disease and autism advocate. M. M. Dryman has a master's in American and New England studies, and has a PhD in public policy. She teaches at the University of Southern Maine. Thanks, Rora. And here's our interview with Lyme historian M.M. Dryman. Very excited to talk to you about this new book. Okay, good. I'm very glad to be done with it. It took me so many years. Did it, how long did it take you to write that? Uh, I'll say over three years, but I was getting a PhD and, you know, doing a lot of other things sort of mixed in there. So it's been on my bucket list and I'm actually not done because I want to do the, um, third edition will be between, I'll say, uh, you know, 1650 through 1975 this. Okay. So the last... So right now I'm in the middle of the um, Lewis and Clark expedition. No kidding. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're being plagued by ticks. And then a lot of them get really sick. And Meriwether Lewis ends up having, you know, psychological problems. Really? Yeah, yeah, which he, you know, I don't think Thomas Jefferson would have chosen him to lead that expedition if he was like that beforehand. Probably not. No. <laughs> Let's <laughs> hope really, not. <laughs> that, that's, that's like the next phase. So you started pulling this thread of Borrelia through history, remember we talked a yes. few years ago about the Salem witches, and yes. the, the more you pull at this thread, the more connections you're finding. It just winds its way through history. Back mil- millions of years to um, Dr. Ponar's work with the uh, amber. He is a scientist that works in Oregon. He's at, I think, Oregon State University, and he he, they started looking for inclusions in amber. So he has found, he's the one that found, for instance, um, he found a tick that had been pulled off, squeezed, so that its blood was sort of oozing out of it, and then thrown into tree sap. So he has found some of the oldest blood that has ever been preserved. And that blood happened to have been infected with Babesia, or the ancestor of Babesia, because it was 15 million years old. Oh, my goodness. It was millions of years old. Um, and then he went on, he said, wow, you know, he found um, ticks, and he is the one that found um, Paleoborrelia in uh, a tick that was preserved in amber. So what's Paleoborrelia? Uh, probably the ancestor okay. of our, our Borrelia that's around today. It looks the same. It looks very similar. You know, it's that spiral. 
In terms of Borrelia itself, in your book, you talk about its unique DNA, what makes Borrelia a special bacteria. Can you elaborate on that for us? Well, it's very uh, persistent. It's hard to get rid of it. It has a, a really tried and true um, life cycle that has been around for millions of years. You know, the, the ticks that are found in amber are extremely similar to the ticks that we have today. Paleoborrelia is that is that spiral-shaped bacteria that is very similar to the Borrelia that is around today. It found a way to, to survive and thrive and hasn't really changed. You know, it, it has worked for them for millions of years. It's older than humans, so we start walking the picture, you know, much, much later. Where does, in your research here, you talk about the kind of the different proto-humans, too. So we got the proto-Borrelia, we've got these uh, other infections that have been hanging around, and then you talk about the, the Neanderthal DNA, and what's yeah. wh- what's so important about that? What's important about that to us, see, all of this is, all of the genetic stuff, and I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a historian, so I try to see it in, in terms of how it affected history. Um, it's not all set in concrete yet. They have a lot to do. Um, but what happened is Neanderthals end up being in Europe and Central Asia for um, hundreds of thousands of years. And they developed immune systems based on the pathogens of what they were encountering in that climate and in that place. When humans begin to come up in waves out of Africa, um, they actually end up interacting with Neanderthals. And from those interactions, we end up with um, uh, immune systems in, of certain people that have very large portions of Neanderthal DNA in the immune system. That seems to be a part of the genetics that we have kept and and it, it must have had some some way of promoting survival, basically. So we're we're only a little bit to have DNA, but that DNA that we get from the Neanderthals are, is in the immune system. So you've got this population of Neanderthals up in Europe and then you get the wave yeah. of and that, and it's not just a population there's there's neanderthals that are in the grasslands oh and there's they're little separate groups of neanderthals all over they, they never were very large and they also were adapted to different environments meaning not very large you're talking about the the, the height of them themselves or the the, well, they the size of the population they small, but the size of the population okay and yet, even though with those small numbers, what you're saying is part of their immune system when the, the, the humans and the Neanderthals interacted, that uh, what remained genetically was, was part of our... So it's part of our immune system now, if we have that type of uh, yeah. ancestry, yeah? Yeah, they, the Neanderthals aren't extinct. They're walking around within <laughs> us. We're carrying them around. 
<laughs> yeah, and it, the thing is that we're all, you know, are, we all are different depending upon um, where our ancestors were, and that's how it affects um, history. The history of where your people were um, will tell you who, what pathogens they um, they encountered over time. And who, where they got some adaptations and, and that sort of thing. So, in your opinion, is the susceptibility to coming down with Lyme disease in present day have to do with the with whose genetics we're carrying around with us? Mm, the genetics and the epigenetics. The yep. epigenetics are the, the pathogens and the the places where people were. Some people can be bitten by 16 ticks and never get sick. Right. And it has, you know what I mean? It has, um, there's a, there's a variability in, um, susceptibility. Yeah. I was giving a talk about Lyme disease in Syracuse at a health food store there and ran into a man who had been bit at least five times that he knows with a bullseye rash. So actually he got the bullseye rash five separate occasions and he's never been sick. It just zero, wow. zero symptoms. So, I mean, the body reacts, he gets the bullseye rash and, you know, whether he's, uh, just housing the Borrelia without symptoms or able to fight it off completely, we don't know at this point, but it was, it was fascinating. He, he, it was a point of pride for him. <laughs> yeah. It, it's one of the explanations for the variability. You know, we're, we're walking around where we have a, uh, a history that's written in our genes, basically. I just found that interesting. It's it's fascinating. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And as you've been kind of following these curious threads of our DNA and Borrelia's history, and then just kind of the behind the scenes infectious history of, of the history we're taught uh, and see in movies, what what's the most surprising thing to you? What what really keeps jumping out at you that just keeps you so interested in this topic? Well, I became very interested in the genetics and all that stuff. The one thing that really I found astounding is that the population of Europe was basically um, completely changed. And nobody knew about it until they started testing uh, for DNA. Mm -hmm. And they they noticed that um, modern people have zero relationship to, you know, the the DNA they were getting out of the graveyards and, and that sort of thing. Really? Yeah. They've found two prehistoric changeovers that they can't well one they can explain, the other one they're not they're they're still working on. And it's a work in progress. But when you have a complete genetic changeover that has to um affect how how people are reacting to the pathogens that are around. Are they bringing pathogens? In the case of the one that is when the Yamnaya come into Europe, they think the the Yamnaya spread either smallpox or plague, but it looks more like smallpox now, in front of them. So they basically infected everybody and then took over Europe. There's one from 14,500 years ago where it seems like the women, um, women with the M haplotype disappear in Europe. And they haven't, they don't know how to explain that, whether, whether again it's a, it's a pandemic. 
so the plague that we know about has um, had there have been prehistoric pandemics, and then what happens is every time you know people confront these things, you end up with a changed innate immune system, and how that deals with um, with uh, Borrelia. It may be, you know, Borrelia tends to not be as life-threatening. So it deals with the plague first and those people that are left behind, you know, have a, have a change in the immune system, basically. So it's happened twice, if not more. And the same thing that happened in over here in the Americas where the Native Americans are, you know, encounter... Well, they don't even know. In, in New England, 98% of the population was, was killed off yes, I'm in ju- uh, 1818, even before the, the pilgrims really land. E- exactly. The fishermen probably brought it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That affects, again, how, how people are going to be dealing with other things. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny that history is taught in terms of warfare. Uh, and I guess that's because the victors feel proud of themselves and write the, write the history. But yeah. it seems that the history that precedes that and underlies that is this history of pandemics. And, and really changing the landscape because I, I'm reading currently, you brought up the, the smallpox and, uh, I think the, the book's title is either 1421 or 1419 anyway. So, and it's talking about this period in, in the Americas, North and South America and that smallpox preceded, you know, we did bring smallpox afterwards as well, but somehow smallpox got established in the Americas and just there's some estimates they're kind of again revising history that wiped out millions upon millions of native americans because they did not have the immune system designed for smallpox and if you're talking about the same right. thing happened in europe that makes sense and there are even uh some interesting little historical tidbits where uh, people born in in america in the early colonial period were not exposed to smallpox as a child. So they were susceptible also. Uh, did yeah. did you know that George Washington inoculated his troops against smallpox at Valley Forge? Had you heard that tidbit? It, well, the whole inoculation, yeah, that was, that was the vaccine. Um, sort of vaccine, right? <laughs> of, the time, yeah, of the time. Um, the whole thing of inoculating against smallpox, well, thank God they did that because then you have there's a huge, you know, smallpox epidemic in um, oh gosh, what year? 1778, I think. It hit me. I know it hit Maine, and it really a lot of people died. Yeah. In Maine, um, and it was at that time of the revolution. So, um, it you know it's this whole thing of of the the science of the day. And do you buy into it? And it sounds like George Washington kind of bought into it and protected his troops. But they still had problems. Oh, yeah. Um, in Morristown, smallpox, there are, there are mass graves, uh, at Jockey Hollow where, you know, where 
from smallpox. But then the people that go through that end up with different, you know, it really does affect the, um, the innate immune system. There's a really great study that they did of plague where they picked, um, they chose the, the Roma people who did not, you know, the gypsies did not really integrate with Europeans, but they chose a group that had moved to Hungary, experienced the plague. They compared them to Hungarians and to Roma in uh, India that hadn't left. The ones that stayed behind, the ones that moved and got the plague, and the Hungarians, and they found that the Roma that had moved and got the plague had uh, innate immune systems that had that were similar to the Hungarians, more similar than to the Roma that were left behind in India. So going through that changed their immune system, and the ones that were left behind were different. So do you think it currently... You speculate here that that's kind of what's happening now is that our we're, we're one of the reasons uh, Borrelia Borreliosis Lyme disease is kind of taking hold is that it's kind of hit uh, a weak spot in our immune system and that our immune system are epigenetically starting to adapt to these new kind of persister. Uh, as we've moved away really from dying from the flu epidemics and, and things like that, and we've pretty much taken care of tuberculosis and polio, and now what's left of these kind of low-intensity bacteria that cause all kinds of quality of life issues, but they don't kill you in a week. They don't kill you right away. Yeah. Um, I think it's, 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 a con- it's, again, one of these complex um, situations you have. Oh, I mean, there's a whole list. You have different way of using the landscape. You have um, uh, you have a, a vaccinated population, and you know we all got our, our vaccinations and everything, but we're also kind of guinea pigs in that. In that they didn't, you know, I don't think they knew if you if you vaccinate everybody for polio, it stops polio, but it doesn't do something else. Finding that out is it's something that is it's going to happen over time. It's not something they knew when they did it, but they did it to save lives. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's, we're different because we're vaccinated, and a hundred years ago, people usually were not. Um, I, I remember my grandmother talking about the controversy over whether she would get a smallpox. I suppose they were doing inoculations or whatever back back in the day. Um, so our immune system is going to be different. So that's one. I think that's that's one thing. We we just are different. But then we live in you know suburbia is we moved into the forest. And then it's it's just a it's a complex picture. Uh, maybe climate change play, plays a role in this, in that you know ticks the the um, the place that they love to live is moving further north. 
but that has happened before. I have a I have a chapter on the Native Americans. You know, they have this area that they call the Cradle of Rheumatoid Rheumatoid Arthritis. It's in like Tennessee, that area, sort of. Um, and when those people are dying, it's when that area has become temperate forest. And you find if you look at skeletal remains of, of various groups of people, you find the hunter-gatherers that are interacting with the forest are the ones that have the most um, joint damage and, and bone damage compared to, uh, for instance, a, a um, medieval peasant who is living in a very heavily modified um, village you know, working in the fields and that kind of thing. They're, they're doing really heavy labor, so you can see that in, the, in their skeletons. But they're also not having as much um, infection in their bones. So I think, you know, how you interact with your environment really it affects your bones. And I think that they, when the archaeologists look at a bone, I, I, they can't tell the difference between... Um, a Lyme infection, or rather a Borrelia infection, and um, rheumatoid arthritis, which actually may, they don't know how that's caused, but I, I think that what it does to bones is very similar. Um, Neanderthals in certain areas have a lot of bone damage also, and they were hunter-gatherers. Did... And you have a section on your book about Otzi, the Iceman. Did he have bone damage? Yes. Oh, yes. And they found the Borrelia deep, like deep in his bones. That's where that DNA came, came from. So the, the Borrelia had burrowed into his bone tissue. Yeah, it goes wow. into the bone tissue. Apparently it shuts off the mechanism that builds bones, but it lets the mechanism that destroys bones, it sort of lets that slide. So you end up with with uh, bone infection. Yeah, Borella, uh, Otzi was a pretty, pretty sick fellow. He had different, you know, serious problems <laughs> besides being, you know, attacked and have an arrow shot in. Yeah, hunted down, right? Can, yeah. For people who are not familiar or forget his story, can you just give us an overview of of him and where he was found and whatever else you can enlighten us with? Of, of, of he, he was found yeah. a mummy. He was mummified in the ice. He died and was almost immediately sort of flash flash frozen, so that when the um, there were hikers that found him. They thought it was a modern, you know, murder victim that had that they found. Uh, and then when they and there was a question about where he was. Everybody kind of wanted to own him once once they found out how old he was. But he was in Italian territory, so he so they built him and actually uh, a museum, which I hope someday to get over there to to um, see him. Uh, in real life. So he was, let's see, he was 45 years old. He died um, 5,300 years ago. 
They think that he was a uh, high-altitude shepherd, which means he was interacting with the forest, taking his um, his sheep up into the mountains in the, the summertime. And he is the um, the oldest uh, laundry victim that we have found because they were they did his um, a DNA study on him to try to find out what his haplotype is, which is, was G. His blood type is O. And they found him, and he was with um, a whole set of uh, different things he had. They could tell what his last meal was, what he was carrying with him, what clothing he was wearing, and quite a bit about his his uh, lifestyle by looking at the various accoutrements that were also kind of frozen into the ice. Um, he had a copper um, axe, which was uh, kind of, it was just the beginning of the use of, of copper, and they tested his hair so they know that he was probably doing some uh, copper processing because as copper and arsenic they found in his hair um, but he also was he was fairly sick they they found the um that he had had uh, Lyme disease he was he had uh whipworms I, I believe he um there's lots to do you know they did they've done a lot of studies on that body. The really interesting thing, which I think I would love to talk to you about, is his um, tattoos. Oh. He has a set of tattoos on his body that some people think um, they were doing an or early form of acupuncture because they're on various acupuncture points. So this is an, an interesting little aside on, on the acupuncture thing. And it got lost in history in China because a uh, new dynasty came in and they favored one form of treatment over the other. <clears throat> and there's an old uh, form of treatment. It's called moxibustion. And moxibustion is burning of an herb on the point, and the herb is from mugwort. Now, it turns out that different cultures have different versions of this. So Mm -hmm. the American Indians had the the sage. um, Medieval Europeans used hot discs that they'd they'd place on the skin. So it's Mm -hmm. entirely possible that these points were used for some sort of burning uh, type of intervention, uh, in addition to, or, or in place of needles. Um, and that they, my understanding is they did map out with, with some traditional, ac- uh, Chinese acupuncture yeah. points, but it yeah. may, may indeed be a, a parallel type of treatment modality. And yeah. we do use moxibustion, uh, a much, a much gentler form. We're not burning people's skin off and creating blisters, but, uh, using thread mocks, a very thin, uh, to help with nerve pain. And it can be quite effective for relieving pain. So, so maybe something like that was done. I don't know if the skin was preserved enough to know if it was blistered or not, but that's, that's entirely possible. 
Yeah, I, I don't know, and I don't know, but they were saying that it might be the acupuncture is older and more widespread than than that we first know. believed. Yeah, 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 because they 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 don't uh, they don't recognize that until uh, several thousand years later in um, in China. You're right in China. Right. They they say that it started there, and that may have been. But there was, uh, there were trade routes and there was a lot of interaction between China, you know, Western China through Central Asia into, um, into Europe, probably earlier than we, we recognize. Exactly. It wasn't, yeah. kind of wasn't until the Middle Ages that the Chinese got very paranoid and, and shut their borders. Uh, yeah. up until that point, they were really, they were sailing around the world and all up and down the Indian Ocean and mm-hmm. were, were really quite adventurous. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and there's a lot, there's, there just was a lot of interaction. That whole Central Asia area is kind of like a, um, hotbed of cultural, you know, stuff going on. It's just fascinating. Now, tell us us about your third book here. What are you exploring in this next phase of your historical look at Lyme disease? It's just that I'm going to lead up to uh, just to the modern discovery. Once it gets named, um, that's the... You know, other people are, can write the modern history. Um, I've lived it and it's kind of, you know, uh, but I would let somebody else write that history, but it's going to be, you know, any place where, what I did when I was writing this book is I said, where would people, um, encounter ticks? Where would they go outside of the, um, their normal lifetime and, 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 you know, where would they, they be the most dangerous? So I end up with, um, uh, anybody like uh, warfare where, where they're not burning off the land and they're not, you know, they're going into forests and that sort of thing to march around to, to whatever they're doing. Um, these, uh, explorations. Any of the exploratory, you know, where they're going to places that they don't know and they, they might encounter ticks there. Um, hunting, you know, it's, it's, in Europe, it's really interesting. There's this whole, um, stereotype, I guess, of the crazy leader. In Europe, what happened is that peasants weren't allowed into the forest. You know, unless it, it was under very, very controlled um, circumstances. And in England, you weren't alle- allowed to um, have anything to do with, with deer because the, 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 any of that kind of thing was owned by the nobility. But it, that would put the nobility in much more likely danger of interacting with, with ticks than just the, you know, normal Joe uh, living their life. Um, so I'm going to do the same thing. So the, the you know, when the Lewis and Clark is going out to uh, explore, they run into ticks. They, they talk about it. They write in their journal how terrible the ticks are. 
when the folks came over here to explore, for instance, in Maine, um, they write about how terrible the ticks, the t- you know, there's a terrible tick problem. What kind of ticks they are, I don't know, but they certainly write in their journals and that sort of thing. So I'm going to be following those threads through, um, through into the 20th century and get into suburbanization and what, you know, what's behind that. Uh, and get up to, you know, Montauk Knee. I think that, um, Nurslenia, which is from the, you know, turn of the last century, that, that time period, may have a lot to do with people who become rusticators and they go out and they enjoy the forests again and get sick. Uh, that's, that's basically the, my thinking behind this writing. It's going to be a fascinating read. <laughs> so I enjoyed Catherine of Aragon, who I knew nothing about. But I, I enjoyed uh, researching her life because she, if anyone had like a chronic problem, she, she, she had it and she, you know, I, I came to really admire her by the time I had um, read as much as I could about her. And I think that that English sweating sickness had something to do with Babesia. Um, it just seems very likely that the folks that were getting it were folks that were interacting more with the forest than other people. Fascinating. Now, people want to read your book and your other books. How how do they find you and your oh, work? They're, they're um, available on Amazon. And the name of your most recent book is The Persistent Spiral. The Ancient History of Lyme Disease and Tick-Borne Infections. Yeah. And the other one is Disguised as the Devil? Yes, that's the other book that I've read of yours. Yeah, How Lyme Disease Created Witches and Changed History. And then do you have a title for this third volume? No. <laughs> of this unofficial trilogy yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but the, when I'm done with that, that'll be my... I don't mind, yeah. I think my last, my last on this. But it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, in my lifetime, you know, I've heard, oh, it's like a minor, nothing disease. You know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you go back and if you actually look, look for it, it's there. People have been coping with it for, I think thousands of years and there's like thousands of years of uh, knowledge and treatments and that sort of thing that are there. I just, I, I, I found, I have found it very interesting and that it is worth noting and it is, you know, it's not an easy to cure thing and people have been dealing with this for thousands of years. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Um, I love my uh, lawn warriors and uh, keep keep fighting the good fight is, is what I could say. And uh, I see changes. 
I'm very enthusiastic and optimistic that we'll get to the point where we have a good test and, and you, you know, you can really determine whether you have this, this disease or not and that a bunch of treatments will be respected. I agree with you. I'm, I'm very hopeful over the next five years that we'll get the testing finally nailed down. And then once that's done, the, the prevalence of the disease will really come to the fore. I, I think there are many, many, many people just like you're digging out of history, uh, who are contemporarily infected with Lyme disease and mislabeled, either undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, most likely. I agree. Totally. And, and so that we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna usher in a whole new world of, of these infections, uh, understanding these infections and, and how people deal with them and how they're triggering all these other conditions that uh, we've yeah. been treating with yeah. more or less success. And, uh, um, yeah, I agree. It's not a hopeless, it's not hopeless. And, um, I, look, I, I've been subjected to, uh, you know, I have a, I have a nemesis that I have been, resoundingly attacked by um, and I would love to see him you know prosecuted one day but I would what I think we really need to concentrate on is is um, getting that test you know a, a good test and also um, getting the various treatments uh, recognized as as uh, viable, you know, because I think China, you know, the Chinese treatment, uh, you just have to have kind of an all of the above thing and not just throw up your hands and say it's, it's not curable and, and run away because that leaves a lot of people um, in the dust. And that's yes, not where it should be. If your doctor says it's not curable, then find a new doctor. Yeah, that's right. Keep, <laughs> Keep trying until you find something that works for you. And it, yeah. what works for you may not be the same as what works for other people. Yes, it goes back to your uh, work looking at the DNA of the immune system and mm-hmm. the DNA of the Borrelia itself and the other, <clears throat> excuse me, the other infections. It, and it makes a difference there. The, those slight differences can, can cause huge differences in people's response and really explains even, even in traditional medicine and there, what are there, 30, 40 drugs for hypertension. And for some people, whole class of drugs just don't work at all. Well, and why right. is that? Well, because yeah. we're all unique, we're, we're not. All, we're not. We're that's right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I have to say, another thing is that um, I sat down. I read all of the. Um, I, I was interested in the sweating sickness, so I read. There are two doctors from that time that wrote that were treating people with this. I have a lot of respect, actually, for those those doctors back then. They were using. Um, things that we would use today for babies. They were using herbs um, that have been tested and are have became modern versions of it. Um, there's a lot of medical knowledge that goes way, way back that gets disrespected because it's, you know, old or for various reasons, not scientific, quote, unquote. Um, there's a lot of knowledge there that, that shouldn't be lost. It should be um, 
green. <laughs> so, well, coming from, I can't agree with you more. I practice yeah. a, a tradition that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 years old. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess I may, you know, Absolutely. That, there's, um, there's something of value to, to preserve there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's uh, that's what I've come. I've come to respect a lot of the medical knowledge and also the people what they went through. With. I suppose I should call you now, Doctor Dryman. Yes, I'm now Doctor <laughs> Dryman. Yes, <absolutely>. Doctor <laughs> Dryman. Thank you so much. I really enjoy our conversations, and you really are bringing a unique voice to Lyme disease, and that's this historical aspect to it and um, applying some rigor and really pulling the threads of, of of these diseases, which, as you state, have been around with us for a long, long time. So thank you for what you're doing. Oh, and thank you for what you're doing, too. No, oh, you're I, very uh, welcome. I like, you know, that you're publicizing various aspects. I learned so much by listening to your podcast. Um, things that I would never, you know, be able to understand or never encounter without um, the publicity that you give to these various ideas. It's a great forum for um, for Lyme folks and for Lyme ideas. So thank you for what you do. really interesting because what she's saying is that Lyme disease has been prevalent for a lot longer and people have been treating it for a lot longer than we give it, give them credit for. That's you, you've got the Plum Island folks who are convinced that Lyme disease started Plum Island in the fifties or sixties. And that was it. There is evidence that Lyme disease goes further back. So it's, more likely that it was weaponized or if just carelessly handled at Plum Island, right? Kind of best case scenario from the government. Worst case is they're trying to turn it to weapon and then got careless with it, right? So there's some giant cover up there. So, but you're right. She reaches back into history and finds little tidbits here and there. And because we've all, I like to say we've all gone through the looking glass, the Lyme looking glass, that everything looks like Lyme disease. When you read the historical threads like she does, she says, hmm, this sounds an awful lot like Lyme, like the crazy monarchs in England. Oh, my gosh, that they all like, yeah. Because they're out in the woods and the peasants, if they were out in the woods, would be hanged. Or even Otzi the Otzi the Iceman who had that the Swiss of- yes the Swiss Iceman exactly yeah. so we know Lyme disease has been a- around for a long time and whether or not it's been weaponized the fact is it's a plague among us right now if you like what we're doing please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review also you can send your feedback to Lyme whoops to feedback at LymeNinjaRadio.com that's feedback at LymeNinjaRadio.com Send us the good, the bad, the ugly. We love to hear from you. We do read every email and even respond to a few if we have time. Also, if you don't know your Lyme score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker to fill out the Lyme Ninja symptom tracker. Last update on the top 10. I thought we'd have them done by this episode. We have one more that needs to be formatted. We'll get that back from the graphic artist. 
and then we should be up and running next week. So we'll announce the details on how you can get the top 10 transcripts. Yes. It's wonderful to have them in written form. You're going to love them. Also, yes, you got to tell them about the Midcoast Lime Conference. April 28th, come join me. I'm the MC at the Midcoast Maine Lime Conference. It's going to be a ton of fun. I'd love to meet you there. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, and if you're a new Lime Ninja, you're learning, this podcast would never, ever end unless we brought you the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can understand the actual voice of Charlie Brown's teacher? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.